Okay, turn with me to Matthew 6 as we look at the model prayer. We, uh, we looked at verse 9. We finished verse 9 where we started on verse 10. Let me read verse 10 again and just do a, just a little bit of over, uh, uh, review and then uh, move right on into our lesson. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, you said that your kingdom come is expressed to the one who has the right to rule, the right to reign. It's none other than the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire should be to see the Lord reigning as king in his kingdom. Uh, so then to pray your kingdom come is to pray for the plan of the eternal deity to be fulfilled, for Christ to come and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. His program should be the preoccupation of our life and of our prayers. Uh, see, God's plan centers in a person. It's not a plan without a person. It's not a program without a person. Uh, a person who will come again to reign. Uh, the return and reign of Jesus Christ will be the consummation of history. Uh, and so to pray your kingdom come is nothing more or less than praying, Christ, we want you to reign here and now. Uh, a true child of God concerns himself not so much with his own plans, his own desires, as he does with the determinate program and plan of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And all of history, all of redemptive history, is moving to the consummation, the return of Christ. Uh, and his cause, his program, and his plans are our preoccupation. God designed and planned human history to glorify his own name, uh, his own cause, his own will, his own son, Jesus Christ. And when someone sincerely believes or genuinely confesses Christ as Lord and King in his or her life, that's what salvation does. It isn't simply taking Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Uh, when you do that, the indwelling Spirit of God brings to you an affirmation that the direction of your life is toward the exaltation of Jesus as the Lord of your life, and your own causes are only valid insofar as they agree with or are in accord with the eternal causes of God to be revealed in Christ. You know, when I pray, your kingdom come, I am affirming that I am willingly relinquishing the rule of my own life, and I'm saying to the Holy Spirit, you take control, do what you will for your glory. And when you do that, you bring yourself into an immediate confrontation with your own human nature. Because your own human nature screams to do its own will and its own way, its own causes. You know, things like this go on. People ask me all the time, well, what do you think about all this going on in our nation? We've got all this division and problems economically and politically in our education system and the rapid rise of uh, acceptance of homosexuality and transgenderism. What's going to happen to our country? Is it going to get worse? Are we going to get persecuted? The answer is yes. Uh, I think the time is coming when we're going to be told that we can't teach certain things. And it's uh, if taking away our tax exemption doesn't stop us, then they'll put us in jail. But if our causes are God's causes, then we lose nothing. If the investment of our lives is in his kingdom, not our kingdom, the world can't touch us. Uh, yes, I'm concerned about where America's going because it's my homeland. 
Uh, and I'm grateful to God for putting me here and the freedoms that we have that aren't in many other places. <clears throat> but frankly, folks, my greater concern is for God's kingdom. Uh, not a passing nation in the history of the world. America's going to go the way of the rest of the nations because built into America is the inevitable hour of its destruction as indicated in God's word, uh, which says righteousness exalts a nation but sends a disgrace to any people. America will not last uh, because no nation ever lasts uh, because built into it are the seeds of its own damnation because of sin. Uh, and I believe that God has already abandoned America as a nation and uh, given it over to its own sinful desires. It can only get worse from here. Uh, but America's not the issue. The issue is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ and his causes. And if that's our concern, then whatever they take, they will never touch the things that really matter. Uh, the world may take away all of your earthly possessions, but it can't take away your love for your family, for your love for God's people, your love for Christ. And if someone says, but they, they could take away our lives, that's true. But they'll never be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, even if they take our lives, they can't touch a single thing in God's kingdom. Uh, and so the only issues that a believer should be concerned about are those issues which build God's kingdom. And that's why we don't want to get sidetracked into the things of our day and the things of our world. <clears throat> the last year has proven that that's very easy to do, hasn't it? Uh, Christians and churches all over our country and the world, for that matter, have gotten sidetracked with squabbles over wearing masks and getting vaccinated and meeting in person or on live stream. And Satan's had a field day with all the division in the church. But... We're in the business of being committed to the kingdom and God's kingdom, and his true church will go on, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. <clears throat> Nations will come and go, our own included, if the Lord doesn't return first. Uh, but that's never to be the issue with us. The issue for us as his followers is the kingdom. Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that we aren't to pray for our leaders. We most certainly are because the Bible tells us to do that. But we're to pray that our leaders would act and speak and think in accord with God's principles. We're kingdom people. And so for us to pray your kingdom come is the most basic part of our lives. Uh, we are to pray for God's causes. I mean, how can we call ourselves Christians? How can we say we've affirmed the lordship of Christ? How can we say that we've crowned him king of our lives? if we're not preoccupied with his causes and not our own causes. And what is God's program? It's to exalt Christ. Uh, his program is the consummation of history in, in the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. The Talmud, which is the um, Jewish commentary on God, his word and his law, said this, quote, the prayer in which there is no mention of the kingdom of God is no prayer, end quote. The kingdom is the heart of the matter. The kingdom is that for which God has planned history. And he may rule and that, that he may rule, that he may reign, that he is supreme. He comes first in our prayers. Therefore, before you go bursting into his presence with all of your petitions, stop to consider his causes and his kingdom and 
affirm your yearning that he be glorified in his purposes and reiterate that your requests are only valid requests insofar as they're in accord with his purposes and will. Now, why is it so hard to do that? What's, what is the problem? <clears throat> it's that as soon as we desire to live a holy life and to live for God, we run into a kingdom that exists in this world, which the scriptures call the kingdom of darkness. And it's the kingdom of darkness, which Satan rules, that opposes the effort of believers to live holy lives. Uh, therefore, subsequent to saying, hallowed be your name, we must say your kingdom come. Because if Satan's kingdom is not resisted, there will be no hallowing of God's name. Unless we are, as Colossians 1.13 says, rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, unless that takes place first, we cannot hallow his name. And so your kingdom come is the only way that his name will ever be hallowed until his reign is established in our lives, until his rule is affirmed in our lives, we have no capacity to hallow his name. And notice also that the next position, uh, petition is your will be done. His kingdom can never come until his will is done because his kingdom and his will are one and the same. And there's so there's a progression of thought here. His will cannot be done until he is acknowledged as king. No one will submit to his will until they submit to his lordship, and until they submit to his will, he can't be lord, and until he is lord, you have no capacity to hallow his name, because he must energize that. And so it would not be enough to say, hallowed be your name, unless we said, your kingdom come, and we can't say your kingdom come apart from saying, your will be done. Because his kingdom is his right to rule, which gives him the privilege of expressing his will to which we submit. And so it all flows together. Now, the first thing to notice about this phrase is the word kingdom. Uh, the, word, the Greek word does not refer primarily to a geographical territory but to sovereignty and dominion. Uh, the idea is that of reigning over, having absolute authority and dominion. Uh, if the translators had chosen to translate this word as reign, uh, it would have communicated the idea behind this word much better than our English word kingdom. Uh, if you say the word kingdom to many people, they think of a geographical area over which a king rules and there are castles and fortresses and fancy robes and pomp and circumstance and knights and maidens and thrones and crowns and all that sort of thing. And we really can't think of a kingdom in any other terms because that's the world's perspective. Uh, that's why Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this world. And so Pilate says, so you're a king? Uh, and the implication is, what kind of a king are you? because no one's ever seen a king like you. So, so the world doesn't understand the kingdom of God or how Christ is a king. But Christ is the king. He reigns, he rules, he has dominion and authority and sovereignty over it all. Right now his reign is a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of his people. 
But Satan is the temporary ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And he is the one who controls the hearts and minds of his followers. But his is a permitted authority. And contrary to how it feels, it is a limited authority. Uh, and one day it will be removed. And Christ will physically reign as the rightful king. His reign will be one with unlimited authority. And he will rule with a rod of iron that is absolute control over any and all rebels. Right now, Christ doesn't have a kingdom here on earth with a throne and a crown and servants and all that. But one day he will. And it is the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ for which we are to pray. And then there is the verb come, which is in the imperative mood, which means that it means come immediately and suddenly. Jesus is saying that we should pray for Christ imminent return to establish his kingdom. That's premillennial theology if I ever heard it. Jesus was a premillennialist. Uh, he said we're to pray for the immediate, sudden, instantaneous establishment of God's kingdom here on earth. This is not talking about the crazy idea that a few Christians have that we're to pray that God will bring about a progressively more godly world here on earth through the evangelistic efforts of the church so that worldwide peace will be achieved and then Christ can return. Let me give you a 25 cent American church history lesson for a couple of minutes. Um, this idea that a worldwide godly society will be achieved through the spread of the gospel culminating in the return of Christ is what's known as post-millennialism. Uh, during the Great Awakening of the 1730s and 1740s, most Christians believe and taught post-millennialism. Uh, as much as I love and agree with most of his doctrine, uh, unfortunately, the great theologian Jonathan Edwards was post-millennial in his eschatology. Uh, he recognized that there was still much visible wickedness in the world, but he felt that the church would continue to advance Christ's kingdom in this world, and eventually uh, the world would turn to Christ and he would return. Uh, Edwards even dated the start of the millennial reign of Christ as taking place around the year 2000. Um, he thought it would take the church about 250 years to accomplish the task of bringing about this transformation in preparation for the return of Christ. Uh, this idea continued on uh, during the Second Great Awakening in the 1830s, uh, when most Christians expected Christ's return within a few years because they saw so many people coming to faith in Christ and the American society was becoming increasingly concerned with Christian ethics. Uh, the evangelist Charles Finney, who I'm convinced was a heretic, although many people think otherwise, uh, he articulated this theme more than anyone else. Uh, he even proclaimed that if the church would do her duty in reforming society, the millennium might take place within three years. Um, Consequently, in the 1840s and 1850s, there was this unprecedented social and religious reform in our nation dealing with temperance laws, uh, anti-slavery laws, women's rights, education, expanded home and foreign missions work, and all of it was done in an effort to bring about the millennium. In fact, in the 1840s, when a preacher by the name of William Miller 
uh, began teaching about the imminent return of Christ, uh, saying there was nothing that remained to be fulfilled before Christ's return, Finney got upset with him and called premillennialism wild and irrational and confronted Miller face to face, trying to set him straight because he thought that if people believed that Christ might return at any moment, they would stop working to accomplish the task of reforming the world into a Christian society. Uh, and it wasn't just Finney who taught such things. Uh, after a well-known revival in 1858, uh, keep that date in mind, 1858, uh, a Philadelphia pastor by the name of Joseph Berg proclaimed this, quote, who does not see that with the termination of injustice and oppression, with the establishment of righteousness in every statute book, with art and science sanctified by the truth of God and holiness to the Lord graven upon the walls of our high places and the whole earth drinking in the reign of righteousness. Oh, this is the reign of Jesus, end quote. What happened two years later? The American Civil War. Uh, and that was the first event to burst the post-millennial uh, balloon for many believers, both in the North and the South. And over the next few decades, with the world getting worse and worse, their theology languished. Um, world War I came along in 1914, and post-millennialism generally died out as a theological approach to theology, uh, to, to eschatology. There, there's still a remnant of believers um, that remains in reform circles who are known as Reconstructionists, uh, who, but by and large, the church's experience with the increasing darkness of our world has proven to be the death of their misguided theology. However, one of the tragedies that resulted from post-millennialism's influence in America over the first 130 years of this nation's history was that the church relinquished certain responsibilities to the government. Uh, because believers thought that Christian influence was ordained by God to take place in every law and in every aspect of government, they let the government take over the responsibility for things which God's word gives to the church, uh, such as the care for widows and the care of orphans. And uh, I have no doubt that their intentions were honorable. Uh, they recognized that the care of the impoverished and the needy was something that God commanded and was the right thing to do. And since many people in the nation agreed with the Christian principles, they delegated the responsibility to accomplish those things to the government. And in their mind, the government was to be a reflection of godly ideas and principles, and such was all a part of their post-millennial mindset. And so whenever some politician proposed some kind of social welfare program, the church leaders jumped on board because they recognized that as a good thing, and none of them recognized that you can't run God's kingdom through the actions of government. Uh, if they had, we wouldn't have gotten into this mess. Uh, I'm amazed how many Christians think that they can preserve the church through the political entities of society. Um, it can't be done. There is no human institution that can dovetail with the kingdom of God in a way that maintains the purity of the church, both in its doctrine and in its leadership. Uh, none at all. That's why when Christians decide to take a political approach to resolving societal problems, they find themselves in bed with all kinds of strange bedfellows because you can't advance the kingdom through the politics of any society. Um, John MacArthur spoke about, he wrote, writes this about this issue, quote, 
Many good and worthy causes deserve the support of Christians, but in supporting those causes, we neither build the earthly kingdom of Jesus Christ nor bring it closer. Even the best of such things are but holding actions that help retard the corruption that will always and inevitably characterize human societies and human kingdoms, end quote. So please don't ever equate the church with America and never equate the kingdom of God with America. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of God. It's bigger than a nation. It's different than a nation. And so our cause is God's cause. As I said, I love this country uh, because it's my home and because God has given us great freedom here. And I'm grateful to him for that. But also because there are people here I love and people I long that they would come to know Christ. But his kingdom, God's kingdom is my cause. And this country will only exist and will only be tolerated in his heart as long as it is in accord with his purposes for the advancement of his kingdom. Uh, I truly believe that God has abandoned our nation because of its rejection of his standards of righteousness and that it will only continue to exist until such time as he is determined. And then this nation will just become another second-rate nation in the world, so important, so unimportant, that it isn't even mentioned in biblical prophecy. Uh, so, you see, his kingdom is the issue. Not my kingdom, not the kingdom of his, this nation, but his kingdom. Well, let me pause there. I was on a soapbox for a couple of minutes there. <laughs> Any questions or comments before I move along? Yes? Post and pre, what is the word that is associated with post and pre? Millennialism. Okay. And the millennial, it, millennial it refers to is the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ. That's, so they're post because... That's what I'm about to teach. They believe it will happen after this thousand years of godly world. Uh, Everybody accepts Christ's kingdom. They, they want Christ. Through and the then of the church. They make, yes, through the church, they will make the world so good that Christ will return. What are you doing about Revelation? Ask Frank. <laughs> <laughs> so... Okay, I don't know what do they do about Jesus saying your kingdom come now, right now. What do they do with that? So, okay, well, you must answer the question then, what is the kingdom? What's, it's an important question, what is it? When we're talking about, when we're, when, what are we talking about when we're talking about the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ? We can't cover everything there is to say about this or we'd never finish this prayer. So I would suggest to you a good book. Uh, if you can, if you you may already, some of you may have it. Uh, Alva McLean's book titled "The Greatness of the Kingdom." Uh, it's a comprehensive book, 556 pages, and uh, but it only costs 22 dollars and 22 cents for a hardback copy. It's a great price for a big thick book like that. Um, but just let me touch on what we mean by the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? After all, Jesus spoke about the kingdom all the time. The Gospels record 52 times that he referred to the kingdom of God and 31 times that he referred to the kingdom of heaven. And I'm sure there were far more than that that he said about it, but uh, those are the only ones recorded for us. Uh, in fact, Matthew 4.17 tells us that when Jesus began his ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, in fact, Jesus made this 
Very important statement in Luke 4, 43. I must preach the kingdom of God for I was sent for this purpose. Uh, in other words, whatever this kingdom is, it's the heart of his message. Why? Because it's the heart of the plan, the heart of history, it's the heart of everything. The reign and rule of Christ is the apex of human history. Nothing else matters except for that, and those things which do matter, matter because they come into accord with this. Uh, Jesus spent three years with his disciples, continually telling, teaching them about the kingdom. Over and over again, it was the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And when he died and rose again, he spent 40 more days with them. And in Acts 1-3, it says, He also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a kingdom of 40 days, and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. Right up until the time of his ascension, back to heaven, he was still talking about the kingdom of his rule and his reign. Jesus spoke of the kingdom in three ways, past, present, and future. Uh, he said the kingdom included those who lived in the past, because in Matthew 8:11 he said that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So it already existed during the time of the patriarchs. He spoke of the kingdom as being present during the time of his ministry. Uh, because in Luke 17, 21, he said, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he spoke of its future coming, because here in our text, in Matthew 6, 10, he says to pray, Your kingdom come. So then, how can the kingdom already be here in the past, be here in the present, and yet need to come in the future? What is this kingdom that is past, present, and future all at the same time? The kingdom that already was, already is, and will come to be. Well, the Jews' idea about the kingdom was that it was what kind of kingdom? Political kingdom, yeah. Now, they thought the kingdom was going to be the Messiah coming in, knocking off the Romans. That wasn't it. So what was this kingdom? Well, keep this in mind. In, in John 18, 36, Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Keep that in mind because that tells us that whatever it is, it won't be what you are used to or expect. We need to make a distinction that will help us understand. First of all, there are two elements to the kingdom. There is one, the universal kingdom, and two, the earthly kingdom. One covers the whole universe, and the, is, and the other one, is related to the earth. Let's talk about the universal kingdom. In one sense, God is the king of the whole universe. There's no question about that. He made it, he runs it, he brings it to its consummation. He is the universal king. James R. Orr, a uh, Scottish theologian of the 18, 1800s and early 1900s, wrote this, quote, there is therefore recognized in Scripture a natural and universal kingdom or dominion of God embracing all objects, persons, and events, all doings of individuals and nations, all operations and changes of nature and history, absolutely without exception, end quote. In other words, God dominates. And the Bible talks about this. Psalm 145.13 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Psalm 103.19 tells us his sovereignty rules over all. In 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and 12, David prayed a prayer that's almost breathtaking in terms of how it expresses his thoughts about God. 
David prayed this way, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. What magnificent words. Uh, he is the universal king and he mediates that reign through the reign of his son by, by whom all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing has come into being that has come into being, John 1.3. And Paul repeats that same idea in Colossians 1.16 and 17. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And Paul told Timothy that Christ is the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. God is the universal king, and he mediates it through his son who rules and is given the right to judge and reign. So that's the universal kingdom. But look at verse 10 for a moment. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where did Jesus say we are to pray that God's kingdom would be established On earth, right? Yes. Okay, glad to hear that. The, the point is that the universal kingdom in heaven is established. The prayer is to let it come to this earth. This one little microscopic speck of sand in an infinite universe inhabited by puny creatures who rebel against a holy God. Let this earth and all its inhabitants be brought into harmony with heaven. What, are, what we are to be praying is, oh God, stop the rebellion, turn it around, and may you be reigning here as you're reigning there. That's a great concept. Although his name is hallowed in heaven, it isn't always hallowed here on earth, is it? Although his will is done in heaven, it isn't always done on earth. And although his kingdom has come in heaven, it hasn't come in the fullest sense on earth because there's rebellion. The purpose then of the prayer is to bring his kingdom to earth, that he might put down sin, that he might bring rebellion, put down rebellion, that he might put down evil, that he might bring in God's holy name, God's reign, God's will. And we know that one day that's going to happen. And when it does happen, there won't be any distinctions between his universal and his earthly kingdom. They will blend together into the eternal reign. Uh, so the kingdom of God is Christ's rule on earth. That's what we're praying for. We're not praying for his kingdom to come universally. where He reigns forever there. We're praying that it will be on earth as it is in heaven. And that brings us to the next issue, and that is, how does it come? How is this prayer to be answered? We've already hinted at it. Let me give you three ways. First, it comes by conversion. This, so, so this is an evangelistic missionary prayer. We want people to come to Christ, and when he does, he reigns in their hearts. In that sense, he's brought his rule to earth. They, may, they become his children, his subjects, his kingdom citizens. And so to say, your kingdom come, is to pray that he will take up his reigning residence in the hearts and lives of those who are yet in rebellion. It's a prayer for salvation. 
Listen, the reason we should evangelize, the reason we should send missionaries is not so much for their sake, but it's for his sake. Because it is wrong that someone should refuse his reign in their life because he is worthy. The reason for someone to become a Christian is to glorify and exalt his name and his kingdom. So the kingdom of God begins with an invitation. If Christ is going to reign on the earth, it begins with an invitation. And in Matthew 22, Jesus told a parable about the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at it. Matthew 22. And see what Jesus says in this parable. Beginning in verse 2. He says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And again he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted livestock, fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but, there, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highway, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Now those initial guests... Who, were, who refused to come are the Jews to whom Christ first offered the kingdom. But they refused and rejected his offer and killed the prophets who went to them with God's offer. So he went out and he offered the kingdom to the Gentiles and brought them in and filled up the kingdom. But I, I want you to notice that there was first an invitation. God was saying, Here's an invitation to enter my kingdom. I want you to come. And so to pray your kingdom come is to pray an evangelistic prayer, a missionary prayer, inviting people to receive the gospel of the kingdom. So conversion to the kingdom includes an invitation, but it also includes repentance. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, we're told that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom comes when you repent. The kingdom comes when you believe. So it's an invitation that demands repentance. Also, becoming a kingdom, a citizen of the kingdom demands a willing response. It demands an act of the will. Jesus told a scribe one time, you're not very far from the kingdom of God. What did he mean? He meant, you've got the head knowledge, but you haven't made the choice yet. If you want to enter the kingdom, you not only have to have the head knowledge, you have to commit your life to follow Christ. Jesus said no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, you can know about it and you can 
make some effort toward it, but until you make the final complete commitment to submit to Christ, you don't enter the kingdom because the rule of Christ is not established in your heart. So remember this, the kingdom is extended as an invitation. It is an invitation that demands repentance from sin and it demands an acceptance by an act of the will of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And let me add that the kingdom is internal. Uh, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's an internal one. It's one of the heart and the life. Such a kingdom, such an internal kingdom offered by an invitation that demands repentance and a choice turning away from sin, turning towards God is offered to everyone. So how do we respond? Well, Jesus said this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and what? All these things will be added to you. We should be seeking, shouldn't we? If there is a kingdom, we ought to seek it. If there's a reign and rule of Christ, we ought to run for it. We ought to seek it with all our heart. Now, why should we seek it for all of our heart? Because Jesus said in Matthew 13, 44 to 46, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking uh, fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The point is that the kingdom is priceless. It's inestimable, inestimable in, its, in its value. And we, because it's worth so much, we should run to grasp it. We're to receive the kingdom. By faith, we should take hold of it because lip service won't do. You see, at the end, at the judge, final judgment, there's going to be many who say, Lord, Lord, and not enter the kingdom. Money won't do it. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a man to buy his way into the kingdom. Self-righteousness won't do it, because unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does it? Faith. Receiving the invitation, repenting of your sin by an act of the will, affirming the Lordship of Christ, seeing that internal miracle take place. And you have to seek it with all of your heart because you value it. So the first way that the kingdom comes is by conversion. The second way the kingdom comes is through commitment. Commitment. As believers, we should pray two ways. First, we should... Pray, Lord, may your program and your plans and your rule be supreme in this world. May your kingdom come in the hearts of rebellious mankind who are not glorifying you. And secondly, we should pray, Lord, may you reign supreme in my own life. You see, he is Lord and he is ruling. But I think there is a time in the Christian life for us to daily affirm that we bow the knee to that rule. That's commitment. It's the place in which I say every day, God, you are my Lord and I submit to you. Because at times, we all come to those crossroads in our lives at which we must choose our will or his will, don't we? At which, you know, our way or his way. And inevitably, we're pulled both ways. So when we affirm, Lord, I commit myself to your cause and your kingdom, then we go his way. In the heart of the believer, we are to submit 
and commit ourselves constantly to the submission to his lordship. One pastor that I read referred to it as responding to the royalty residing within us. Uh, that's what Paul meant in Romans 14, 17, when he said, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the kingdom of God is not what happens on the outside. It's not external activities. Rather, it's what takes place on the inside as we submit to and commune with God. And so I can pray, O oh Lord, make me more righteous. Make me more like Christ. Fill me more with your peace. Let me know the fullness of joy of the Holy Spirit. And as I give myself over to the virtues that the Spirit wants to produce in my life, I'm asking that the fullness of Christ's kingdom will reign and be revealed in and through me. There's a third way the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes, as I said, first by conversion, second by commitment. Finally, it comes by consummation. And what I mean is that Jesus is physically coming again to establish his kingdom. One day the heavens will split wide open and Jesus Christ will descend and plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. And in this world, he will establish his kingdom. I believe that that will take place at the end of the seven-year period known as the tribulation when Christ will return the second time. This is not the rapture of the church. The church will have been raptured before the tribulation. We will be saved from the wrath of God, which is poured out on the world during that time. But at the end of that time, Revelation tells us that Christ will return to establish his kingdom, and it will be a literal thousand-year millennial kingdom in which he will set things right and rule with a rod of iron. Now you say, now why will he need to rule with a rod of iron? That implies that there will be those who rebel or commit acts worthy of punishment, even though everyone who enters the kingdom will be believers. Well, because those people will have children during the millennial kingdom. The earth will be repopulated by all those who enter the kingdom, but their children will still have unregenerate hearts. And so Christ will rule with absolute authority that tolerates no rebellion. And his thousand-year reign will be one of righteousness, justice, truth, and peace. At the end of that time, Satan will be released from the bottomless pit in which he will have been imprisoned for a thousand years. And he will go out and deceive all the nations into following him in one massive war of rebellion against Christ. Uh, it's one of the most amazing things in all of the study of eschatology to realize that people who have experienced the perfect reign of Christ with all of its perfections for a thousand years will turn against God and follow Satan. Uh, but they will. Just proves how utterly corrupt and depraved and rebellion the fallen human heart really is. Uh, and although not exactly the same, it's very similar to what happened in the Garden of Eden. Uh, the only difference is that in Eden, man was created in perfection but with a free will. He lived in a perfect location with a perfect God with whom he communed in perfection, and yet he used his free will to choose to rebel against Satan, uh, against God's rules, and consequently man lost his free will and became a slave of sin. In a similar way, mankind will do the same thing again at the end of the millennial kingdom. After living with an absolutely perfect king, with perfect laws, perfect conditions, perfect justice, perfect everything, 
so that even the effects of sin on creation are reversed, so the lamb will lie down with the lion, mankind will choose to rebel against God and follow Satan. But God will destroy all of his foes, condemn them to eternal hell in the lake of fire, and the millennial kingdom will then morph into the universal eternal kingdom with new heavens and a new earth in which only perfect righteousness exists for all of eternity. So there will be an actual coming again of God's kingdom to this earth, and we are to pray for its coming. At the end of the book of Revelation, after explaining all that was going to take place during leading up to Christ's final triumph and establishing his eternal kingdom, John writes in Revelation 22:20 that he who testifies to these things, that's Christ, says, yes, I am coming quickly. To which John replies, amen, come Lord Jesus. So Jesus prayed, your kingdom come. And John prays, come Lord Jesus. So we should pray for Christ to return and establish his kingdom. When's all that going to take place? Well, the disciples wondered the same thing. In Acts 1, 6-8, just before Christ ascended back to heaven, the disciples asked him, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' response was, it's not for you to know the times or epochs in which the Father is fixed by his own authority. And then he went on to tell them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, don't worry about when I'm coming back. Just get busy doing my job, my work of reaching lost souls so that my kingdom can be established in their hearts. So we are to pray that not only that his reign would come in the hearts and lives of those who don't know him, but we're to pray that his reign would come in our hearts to the fullness of which he is worthy. And we are to pray for that day when he will come and break the tyranny of sin and set this evil, ugly, cursed world aright. It's got to be that way because that's what the Bible promises. Oh, I'm looking at the time, and I know I have five more minutes. Let me see where we're at. No. <laughs> I've got to, I, I, I got to stop. I'm at a good spot in my notes to stop. Any comments or questions? I know that uh, for some of you, we may have been swimming in the deep end of the theological pool this morning. For others, it was an encouragement to your heart. Yes, this is what I'm looking forward to, the return of Christ. I know I am. I'm sick of this world. So, the uh, any anything? Yes, Janetta? He spread. He 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 opens apart the Red Sea, so they all go through on dry ground, and then the next thing you know, they're they're saying, "Where's the water? Where's the meat? We're missing the meat that we had in Egypt." 
uh, just one thing right after another. Shows how corrupt the human heart really is. So a thousand year reign of Christ in the millennial kingdom and man will still rebel against him. Anything else? Frank, close us with prayer, please. Holy Father, we 